this is such a familiar story. If you've grown up in church, you've heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, I, I, I love this. Uh, just thinking about this, again, I, I, I tell you when I read Scripture, I like to put myself in it and just, this is a crazy story to think about crossing. If we all gather at the Ohio this morning over here at the river and just to see it part, just to walk through that, just how incredibly awesome that would be and scary all at the same time. Uh, and, and, and so this is one of those, the most amazing miracles in the Bible as we find right here in, the, in, in Exodus 14. Uh, and there's, there's a story of a, of a liberal preacher going to a conservative church preaching the crossing of the Red Sea. And, um, and as he was preaching it, you know, because there, there's a lot of different views on this. Like, what part of the Red Sea do they really cross? So, so, you know, we, we try sometimes with miracles to, like, just explain them naturally so much. And, and so um, this liberal preacher was preaching this passage. And, and when he said, you know, when he read where they crossed over the dry ground, this gentleman in the congregation said, said, Amen, praise the Lord that the Egyptians or that the Israelites made it across on dry ground and were saved. And the liberal preacher just was a little bit insulted. He interrupted his time. You know, this was his time to preach. And he said, well, you need to understand that what was going on was really they were crossing through this marshland. Uh, it wasn't, you know, like you're thinking, you know, you know, deep, deep, deep waters. This was more like marsh that they were crossing. And then he kind of started going back, getting ready to go back to the passage. And, and uh, the, the guy said, hey, same guy, amen, praise the Lord. That the Egyptians drowned through six inches of water. And, and so we got to be careful with miracles of like trying to just explain them away. That you miss that this is not natural. Whatever you want to do with this, either way, if it was just a little bit of water, a lot of water, this is a miracle. Uh, and, and so I read it for how it is, um, that they crossed over dry land. There's a wall of water and but as we read this, I don't want us just to think about that this was just some water they were crossing over on dry ground and they're no longer slaves. I want us to see this beautiful picture of the gospel and the picture of salvation. And uh, um, my outline comes from uh, one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard on this passage from Tim Keller. And so um, I've adapted it to fit our context, but... Um, a lot of this will come from that sermon that greatly impacted me. Um, and so uh, I want us to see some, some, um, some truths. So I want you to see four things in this passage towards salvation, towards what God has done. Number one, that we are safe from bondage. That we are safe from bondage. You think about this. They, they were slaves on the western uh, Sure, they were free, they were liberated, set free on the eastern shore. Uh, that they were no longer slaves, that they had been set free, they were no longer captive, that they were free. But what's strange here, you still see the problem. Uh, the, the problem is, though they were taken out of Egypt, you're going to see in verses 10 through 12 that Egypt had not been taken out of them. And so look at 10 through 12 with me. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. So you see, even God's bringing them the freedom, they're still acting like slaves. And this is exactly what we do as followers of Christ. We have been set free, but yet there are moments where we are still captive to our sin. That we still act like we are slaves. And in fact, you know, they raised this question, is this, is this not what we told you when you came to us? And Moses could have said, no. Back in chapter 4, when Moses and Aaron came to them and told them that God had heard their cries, that God sees their afflictions, you remember at the end of chapter 4 what they did? It said that they bowed their head and worshipped. But yet, because now they see some things that cause fear in their lives, now they want to go back the way it used to be. And I wonder how many of us do the very same thing. Last week you gathered here to worship, bow down to God, but then this week maybe you had a terrible week. And there were moments in the week where you wanted to go back to your old way. And you just thought, this is too hard. You remember from several weeks ago when we talked about that, that oftentimes it gets harder before it gets better? That's what's going on this night. It's hard. It's hard to follow the Lord when you see your enemy coming upon you. You turn around and all you see is Water to that side, you look to this side, and it's just your enemy. I just want to quit. I just want to give up and go back to that old way. This is too hard. That's where they were. Anybody with me? You had a week where you just want to quit? Man, I, I, I just can't figure this thing out. You just started acting like you used to. Tim Keller goes on in that sermon to talk about how we have layers of bondage. And man, this has helped me so much to understand this. I alluded to this a little bit last week. But what happens is you'll see this. So layers of bondage. Number one, you have this, in Scripture, you'll see this objective layer. And so this will be like a passage like Romans 8. So Romans 8 says, there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, if there's this union with Him where you're one in Christ, there is no condemnation. Meaning, you used to have condemnation upon you. There was the wrath of God that was coming upon you. There is a penalty of sin that needs to be dealt with. Well, the objective uh, layer of bondage would say, like, 
Like in salvation, you're set free. So now you're objectively set free. There's no condemnation. You're no longer under that penalty of sin. And so Paul was writing that in Romans 8, saying right now, there is not now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're no longer condemned. Present tense. We are set free. But yet there's this uh, second layer, that there's this subjective layer. Um, same guy who wrote Romans 8, wrote Galatians 5, says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. But then look, there's a command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Meaning that the, the church uh, in Galatia, they were going back to their old ways. That's why Paul's writing this to them. Don't go back to that. You're free from that. Uh, Paul would also write this in, uh, in 1 Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, how can Paul, in one letter, say that he's the greatest sinner? But yet in another letter, say there's no condemnation for me. Paul's saying, I'm not being condemned. Because there's this objective and subjective layer. Objectively, he's set free. Christ has saved him. He has removed that penalty of sin. But yet, subjectively, Paul is still on a journey. He can say, I'm the greatest of sinner. Present tense. That I, there's still sin in my life that God is working on. Now, theologically, the theological phrases would be justification, sanctification, glorification. So let me give you some phrases. This really helps me. So the first one, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Justification. That's the objective, okay? That's the objective um, of salvation, it's not subjective, it's objective. This is what has been done for you. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. That penalty has been paid for, it's been removed. So that would be like this Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what that means. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin, justification. Next, we are being saved from the power of sin. See, you've got to understand the difference between being saved from the penalty of sin and being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. That's what's happening in your life. You are growing. So if you've been a Christian for some time, you can probably look back and see some, some power. Like you've, you've had some victory over some old sins that you used to struggle with and maybe now you don't. Because you're being saved from the power of those sins. This would be like Romans 7. Paul, same guy writing this. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 7, you see like this battle, like you still see there's power 
There's this power of sin. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. The third one, we will one day be saved from the presence of sin. Man, I cannot wait for that day. Can you imagine that? Like, you won't even have a wicked thought in your mind. You, you're like, there's still that battle where you're like, should I lie and tell them this? And then you're like, no, I can't do that. That's ridiculous. So you tell the truth. There's going to be a day where that won't even be a thought. And that is so far from my mind right now to even think. Like, like the thing, like, I won't even be capable of sinning. Isn't that amazing? So this is Philippians 3, same guy, Paul, writes this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject, to even subject all things to himself. We are going to be transformed one day to be just like Jesus amazing? Like, I can't even fathom that, that I'm going to be like Jesus. And so we are saved from bondage. Secondly, we are saved by grace. Man, you read 13 and 14, and man, this is the gospel. Uh, you just see this right here in 13 and 14. Um, let's look at this together. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. I love this. That the Lord will fight for you. This is so different than any other religion. You think about it, they crossed over the Red Sea, through the Red Sea on dry ground. That, that there is this warrior, invisible warrior fighting on their behalf, fighting for them, and them walking across. Every other religion is about how you get from one side to the other. Pray this many times, give this amount of money, make this pilgrimage, go on this many years of missions, then God will receive you. That's what every religion is about, but ours. Biblical Christianity is about what God has done for you, that you are saved by grace. They did nothing here but freak out. You see, they're scared to death, and God says, don't fear. Trust me. And God does all the work. He parts the waters. All they, do have, all they have to do is Trust and go across. I love this picture. And what I love is like, in this, and this is where I put myself in this, and I love how um, in this we don't really see 
the attitudes of all the different people. You remember last week we talked about how many are crossing. You remember this from last week? There's, you know, it said that over 600,000 men, not counting the women and children, crossed. And so this could have been, you know, if they were married and had kids, it could have easily been 1.2, 1.5 million Jews crossing. Now think about the different qualities of faith crossing. Man, I hope you hear this this morning. Because see, sometimes we think it's about how much faith we have and I'm going to, you know, put on my boots and like really go to work. And even though I know I'm saved by faith, it's still like, what can I do? It's about like me adding to it. Notice we don't see anything about the levels of the quality of faith. We only see the object of their faith. You are saved by putting your faith in the object of faith, not your measure of faith. That's so important. Can you imagine? I'm just thinking, you're there, and there's going to be some guys when that, and just, you're there, and the water part, you're like, no way. And there's going to be some that, that you know, they go from fear to like, yeah, now what? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, come mess with us. So they're going to be like strutting through. And, and then there's going to be a lot of people walking through just like, they're going to look more like, so like the first people would just be kind of just strolling, just kind of strutting. Like, you get, what, what are you guys going to do? Nothing. And then you've got like these other people that probably look more like, like mall walkers. You know mall walkers? They're like, they're like, and they are scared to death walking through these walls of water. Especially when you get like halfway. You know what I mean? Like when you first go in, you're like, and so just in case it starts to come, you can run back. But once you're halfway, man, you're in. <laughs> and, and so they're, they're in, and, but you don't see that being uh, a concern at all. And so once they get to the other side, it's all a matter of did they trust in the object of their faith. And there's going to be weeks where you're going to think like, that I've got to muster up more faith, I've got to work harder. It's not about you. It's about the object of your faith, that you're trusting in Jesus to do all the work for your salvation. And American Christianity, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a Jesus and kind of Christianity. It's Jesus saves me, but look how hard I work to keep my salvation or to make sure God hears my prayers or to make sure my life is good, that I'm financially blessed. That's, it's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus, Period. So we see that we're saved from bondage. We are saved by grace. Third, we are saved through a mediator. Man, I love this, to think that we are saved through a, a mediator. A mediator is a representative. Uh, it's a middleman, someone to go before you. Uh, 
if you ever bought a car, this is, there's a salesman you're working with, then they always have to go to another room, right? Let me, well, let me go talk to my boss. And really, they're, they're going in there. They're probably Some of you are car salesmen. You can let us in on what really happens. But what I picture is you go in there, you're watching Sports Center for a little bit, getting a cup of coffee, and you come back out, and you say, well, I talked to the boss. We really can't. This is the best we can do. Well, no, okay, well, let me go back. And so you're a mediator. You're going back and forth. You're, you're representing both parties. So let me go see what, you know, I'm, I'm for you. Let me go see what I can talk down my boss. And then, he, then he's also working for the boss, coming back, well, this is the best we can do. Mediator. We are saved through a mediator. If you notice how Moses in this passage, he, he's... He is identified as an Israelite. He's, he's, he's with them. Even though God's pulled him out, he's still being identified with them. Uh, in verse 15, look at this. In verse 15, so they're all complaining. And, and then the Lord says to Moses in verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. You don't see Moses saying, oh, you mean, why do they cry? We're, we're good, Lord. I'm not crying. But the Lord, when he looks at Moses, he looks at Israel. That he's a representative of Israel. And he's saying, why do you, Moses, singular, cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, to stop their complaining to stop crying, get through there, go. And on the other side, we see that he is a representative of God, that God is using him. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So from their perspective, they'd never see God, but they see Moses with his staff. And when he does this, the waters part. When he does that, they come back together. That Moses is a representation of God right there for them. And this is what we see with our salvation, is that we are saved through a mediator. That Jesus Christ is this middleman. Hebrews uh, 4 talks about how Jesus is the greater Moses. That, that Moses was this mediator. He was fully man and close to God. But Jesus was fully man and fully God. He was God. And so he was this perfect mediator. Uh, that, that He was... The Son of Man, when God looked upon him, he saw a faithful son. But then when the people looked to him, they saw deity. This is what's happening at the cross. This whole picture of, this, of the Red Sea and being saved from bondage and saved by grace, being saved through a mediator. This is a beautiful picture of salvation and the cross and punishment 
That's what baptism is this picture of. Paul alludes to baptism uh, when he talks about Christ and, and, and death and punishment. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That Moses was this mediator. And, and he was making it possible for them to cross. And that's what's happening with Jesus on the cross. Jesus. See, this is, I don't want you to miss this. Why were the Israelites spared across dry ground, but the Egyptians, the water collapsed on? Were the Israelites better people? Were they sinless? Absolutely not. We see them not trusting in the Lord. They were already sinning right here before they crossed. But God had grace upon them. And Jesus, it's this beautiful picture that, that on the cross, that Jesus is taking the water. If water is this picture of judgment, that the walls collapsed in on Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. And the people around that day were all looking up at the cross on dry ground. That is who we are. That we look to Jesus, that, he, that he's allowing the waters to come upon him. That on Good Friday, uh, we are still slaves that we are captive, but on Easter morning, that we're now set free. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are set free. We're no longer slaves. And so that's this picture of baptism. But it baffles me. It, that's that we can read things like this, that, that, that the water should have collapsed on us, that we should have died on the cross for our sin. But yet Christ has done this amazing uh, miracle for us, and yet we just kind of just embrace it and just it doesn't doesn't put a smile on our face, it doesn't lead to joy, and it just baffles me. And I love just how all this unfolds, the order here, is that they cross the Red Sea, and the very first thing they do, if you have a Bible, just, just look with me, because this is our last point, our final point, is that salvation lead us, should lead us to praise. Salvation should lead us to praise. And it blows my mind how many people say that they're saved. But man, they just don't live like it. There's no praise on their lips. There's no joy in their hearts. I just wonder, do you, either one, you're not saved, or you don't really know what has happened at salvation. Because the very first thing they do, like they don't write a book about what just happened. 
the very first thing they do is they sing. In Exodus 15, and mine says the song of Moses. But I think it's misleading a little bit because in verse 1 it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. They didn't keep walking and start building homes. They didn't think about what job am I going to get. The very first thing they did after they were saved is they sang. Saved people are a singing people. We are commanded over a hundred times in the Bible to sing. Sing to the Lord. And here we, I love that we have a song, but it doesn't give us any of, uh, it doesn't give us any music. It just gives us the lyrics. I love that. This could be set to Southern Gospel. It could be set to an orchestra. It could be set to um, uh, rock. It's not about the style of music. It's about the lyrics. So I love, I love that Andrew is leadership and the band and you guys just, that you put so much thought into what we sing about. You know, sometimes you hear songs and, and, and listen, I, I listen to K-Love, okay? Let me just say that. But there's a lot of songs on K-Love that we would never sing here. It's not a shot at K-Love, okay? K-Love's mission isn't to create songs for us to sing on Sunday morning. Caleb's songs is to be positive and encouraging. Uh, and so that's what they do. And so, but there's some songs when you listen to Caleb, I don't know if they're talking about a guy or a girl or a God. Right? We're not going to sing those songs here on Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to sing songs that are Christ-centered. Singing helps us to remember what God has done. I know my kids love my sermons, okay, right? She's kind of like, yeah. But I've never heard them just go around the house quoting my sermons. But they go around the house singing the songs we sing on Sunday morning. I love that. I love, Andrew, when our kids go home and they're even in the van or at the house on Sunday afternoon, we're out playing and, and they're singing songs we just sang that morning. It's teaching them who their God is, that He is always faithful, that He is a rock, that He is my salvation. See, this, this, it's preparing them for this hard road. They, don't, they have no idea it's 40 years through the wilderness. In fact, the way that God took them, even at this point, was not the easiest way. There was a much easier way to get to Israel. It's called the way of the sea. It was a very popular route. This was not the way they went. It's a reminder for us that the easy route is not always the best route. You hear me this morning? The easiest route is not always the best route for us. We want the, I want the easiest route, the most convenient route. God says, I, I, I'm doing something bigger than that. God needed 40 years to get 400 years of being in Egypt out of them. So it took them 40 years. 
So we're singing people. But what baffles me, I'm so glad that I, I am not up here when we sing. Because, you know, when I'm preaching, most of you are engaged, and I see some of you taking notes. Um, you know, sometimes there's, there's people that I can see you're just, you could care less right now. Um, now. Right now, you're like, not me, I'm, I'm engaged. But I cannot imagine, like, singing. And my wife, she's led music for years. We'd be at churches, and she'd play, and she'd see people like this. Can't imagine what that would do to you. And, and I, I've seen it here where you, we just read where God pulls us from, from death to life. That in Matthew 18, there's a parable where there, there's this master and we owe the master $7 billion and we beg for mercy and the master lets him go for free, just leave. And that guy should be the most joyous guy, but he sees another man who owes him about $13,000, and he's so ungrateful and begins to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. And I just wonder how many of us feel like that same, we're that same guy, that God has freed us. Maybe you don't realize that you had $7 billion worth of debt to pay off, that you think, well, I'm not that bad of a guy. Wrong. You owe God a debt that you could not pay, and he just said, you know what? I have mercy upon you. You are free. You should run out of there just singing, skipping through town. When that guy says, hey, you owe me some money, you know what? Forget about it. God's done so much for me. Don't worry about it. Take that money. Give it to somebody else. Some of you, I don't know if you realize that's what's happened in your, in your heart. That God's rescued you from a debt you cannot pay. And then... Andrew and the band, they, they get these songs together that lead us to sing about who God is, what he's done, and you're like this. None of that stirs your heart? I'm not saying you have to jump up and down and raise your hand and, I don't know, run around. But do you get excited? Do you at least sing? The New Testament commands us to sing to one another. When do you do that? If you don't do that here, I'm guessing you're not calling up people in the church. Hey, you know, God put you on my mind today. You got a moment, let me sing a little song to you. <laughs> Any of you do that? So if Scripture commands us to sing to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and you sit here like, or stand here, Maybe set, but I think stand. And you're like this. When are you obedient to that passage? When are you faithful to those commands to sing to one another? I'm not saying you have to like every song we do. Let me just be honest. There's songs we sing that some, I would have picked a different, like if, if the set list would have come to me, I'd have been like, can we take that one out this morning? It's not about me not about my preference, that I am singing, saying amen to that song. That sometimes, I, you know, I may not like it, but I see somebody over here, over here. And this is the whole idea of, do we turn lights all the way down to where, you know, you can't see anybody and anything? And I've wrestled with this theology. 
and it's, you just become an individual. And so you're an individual in corporate worship. You're an individual the rest of the week in your private time of singing. Sunday morning, so it used to be like, I don't like that people can see me. I feel kind of vulnerable. But now I, I, I see the beauty of it that, because I see some of you singing and you're like, you're going at it. Like, you're crying because that song means something to you. So that moment I'm like, oh, I don't really like this song. Then I see somebody crying or just, I can hear them behind me singing. Like, it's not about whether I like the song or not. I need to sing because it's, it's, it's corporate time. It's participation time. I have never seen this. I, I mentioned it to Andrew this week that we'd be going over the song of Moses and what some thoughts he had for me or maybe something he'd want me to tell you that maybe he wouldn't have an opportunity or maybe just wouldn't tell you. Uh, and, and he just pointed out um, a, a verse. I know I've read, but I, I've never noticed this. The Last Supper, so the Last Supper, they're, they're gathering, celebrating what just happened, the Passover meal. That God has passed over them. They cross over dry ground. And look at this in Mark 14. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, all that I get every, you know, when we do the Lord's Supper, I may even read some of those Lord's Supper passages, but I've never saw verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I've never thought about. At this point, there's 11. Judas had already left. Well, I guess there's 12. There'd be 13 counting Jesus, 12 disciples. Bath is not my thing. So Judas is gone. And they're just singing. I'm guessing nobody brought a djembe or a guitar. They're just singing a cappella, I'm guessing, in this room. Maybe the song of Moses? But I love it. it's the song of it's Moses and the people. It wasn't just, it's not just a band playing and then we're just at a concert. It's the band and the congregation. It's Moses and Israel. It's Jesus and the disciples. It's not like Peter's going, oh, I'm tired of this song. Jesus keeps singing it every year. I wish he'd do a different song. Now, Caleb does do that. My goodness, while we're still singing Big, Big House on Caleb, I have no idea. But they're singing a hymn. I would love to know what they're singing. And you know, they didn't all have good voice. I can't imagine Peter. These are all fishermen. And I think Peter had a good voice. You know, one of them probably were singing too loud. Shouldn't maybe louder than what they should be. But I love that they're singing. They're using their voices. They're singing together. Singing shows us something about our hearts. That when we are saved, that it should lead us to praise. And we are commanded all throughout Scripture to sing. Music's important. God tells us how to do it. It should be done skillfully with instruments and so this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to do what Jesus and his disciples did almost 2,000 years ago. We're going to sing some hymns. We're going to celebrate. 
And now, I'm going to walk around. If you're not singing, I'm going to smack your hand. Sing! If not, we're going to go over the plan of salvation and say, get right with the Lord. Sing. Now, if you're here this morning and you just don't like to sing, I'm, not, I'm really not going to go around and smack your hand. But at least this morning, you're going to think about why you're not singing. Think about the words. Meditate. Sometimes you just want to meditate on the words. Amen. It's about your heart. I'm not saying you have to sing. But at some point, you, you're going to, it's going to come out. Praise comes out because of what God has rescued you from. So this morning, the Lord's Supper, it's about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That his body was broken for our sin. So that's what the bread represents. That he had to die. He took our place. But something had to die. And so that's what the cup represents. It represents blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. So when you come this morning, you're remembering what he's done for you. Uh, and you are identifying as a Christian that I am saved. And so if you're a Christian, you've repented of your sin. And whenever you are ready, you come and take of the Lord's Supper. Then once we're done, we are going to sing some songs. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that we would be a joy-filled people. That we understand that we have been saved from the walls of water that should have crashed down upon us. Our lives look no different than the Egyptians. But yet you've been so gracious to us. Lord, may we come this morning to the table filled with joy and thanksgiving for what you've done for us, that you did it all, and all to you we owe. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.